Support for this program is provided by Chevron, the human energy company. This is Politico Energy. I'm Catherine Morehouse. 2023 was a big year for energy, both at home and abroad. We saw big steps on critical climate and energy policies, yet fossil fuels continued to flourish. In the meantime, wildfires, droughts, hurricanes, and extreme heat remind us that climate change isn't slowing down. And policymakers will need to figure out how to balance progress on climate while also keeping the economy stable. So today, we chat with Politico's Matt Daly about what happened in 2023 and what that will mean for 2024. It's Friday, December 22nd. Let's start small bore and sort of build our way up. So there's Democrats managed to get some of their long-term priorities put into regulations or at least largely launched into regulatory proposals. EPA rolled out its climate change rule for power plants. This is really designed to reduce the carbon from what was once the largest sector contributing to climate change in the country. The trends in that are are pretty clear. Coal power plants are going away. This rule is going to make it almost impossible for a coal power plant to operate in the country. Another big priority that got done on the regulatory front is the methane rule. This is one where basically the oil and gas industry will have to be a lot better at policing its own leaks. This is methane, which is the major component of natural gas, and leaks from wellheads, it leaks from pipes, it leaks from processing facilities. It's also one of the biggest drivers of global warming right now. Scientists say if we can actually get rid of those methane leaks, reduce methane emissions, we'll buy ourselves a lot of time until we can really deal with carbon dioxide. In a sort of larger sense, this was really an implementation year for a lot of the legislation that Congress passed in the first two years of the Biden presidency. There was the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act and the IRA, two major pieces of legislation that really the American public doesn't really know much about or seem to care about. These are giant transformative pieces of legislation. So it's going to take a long time to figure out exactly how they're going to play out. The renewable energy incentives that were in the IRA are going to take years to really get underway. That's the same with some of the loans under the loan guarantee program there and how that builds manufacturing in the United States. And then we sort of finished the year on a pretty big note with the UN Climate Conference, COP28. Yeah, what did we see there? Well, it's interesting because governments from almost 200 countries got together and for the first time agreed to really start to explicitly push the economies away from fossil fuels. But this is not anyway binding, but it does send a signal down the line that this is a trend that needs to start to be followed, that they need to really start to think about the role that fossil fuels play in economies. So it sounds like a lot of tentative wins for climate, I would say. But we also, I don't think, can say that this has been a bad year for fossil fuels and the fossil fuel industry. We've reported many times that the oil and gas production and fossil fuel production in the U.S. is higher than ever. So what do we know about how all of this kind of tension between the progress we're making on climate and also at the same time the continued growth and enforcement of the fossil fuel industry? How does all of this position Biden going into the 2024 election season? Does this record help him or hurt him? Do voters even care? Where does this put him? He's really trying to have his cake and eat it, too, because the United States is the number one oil and gas producer 
in the world. That's something that has really benefited the U.S. economy. It helped it come out of the pandemic a lot stronger than many other countries did. It helped address what were really some global disruptions in the economy that Europe faced when Russia invaded Ukraine. Oil and gas companies have really been just going all out. The United States is playing a greater role in gas exports around the world and oil exports, a boon to the U.S. economy. And it's a boon to American consumers who get to pay a little bit less on their bills for that. That helps Joe Biden, who's been battling perception that he's driven inflation, that democratic spending has driven inflation and is hurting U.S. households. And this is something that his team hasn't done a very good job about messaging on because people really still believe that Biden is causing them a lot of the economic problems, even though the Fed is more in charge of the economy than the Biden administration, certainly. And that's going to really hurt Biden at the polls. Whether or not people are going to give him credit for what's happened in the energy markets, both renewables and oil and gas sectors, is an unknown question and is really going to be not decided until next November. So I also want to dive a bit more into international negotiations. You mentioned COP progress at the beginning, but we also know that there are a lot of frustrations among advocates that these negotiations didn't go far enough and that there's still a ton of tension on climate between the two biggest emitters, the U.S. and China. So can you talk a bit more about where there are ongoing tensions between nations here? After almost three decades of these climate talks, we're really starting to get to some major fault lines here. The U.S.-China fault line is one that has been playing out for a lot in recent years. John Kerry and the U.S. have really tried to, John Kerry being the U.S. climate envoy, they've really tried to ring fence climate change when dealing with China and say, look, this is an issue for the planet. We all have to deal with this. Let's leave the rest of our tensions aside and deal with this. China, on the other hand, has really said, no, this is one of many issues that we have to deal with. And they put it all together and they'll leverage that. They stopped climate collaboration with the United States because of tensions over Taiwan and some issues around Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Those tensions are going to continue and it's going to be a really difficult issue for those two countries. But at the same time, I think a lot of issues have come to the surface there where you see that while the COP was seen as relatively successful and there's an explicit urge to move away from fossil fuels, a lot of developing countries and middle-income countries are really interested in developing fossil fuels. And then on the other hand, you have a new fund that's designed to help the poorest countries address the damages they've suffered from climate change. We feel them in the U.S., but we also have a lot more resources to be able to adapt to those and to come back from disasters. Many parts of the world don't have that capacity. And they're now coming to the rich world and saying, you've caused these problems, not us, and we're the ones paying the price and we're the ones that can't adapt to them. So that does really show that there's a greater consideration about how the world is going to progress and how the world is going to deal with these issues going forward. So to end on kind of a sobering note, 2023 was also the hottest year on record. We saw droughts, we saw hurricanes, we saw wildfires. Do you think that we can look back at this year and make the case that much has changed in energy policy and that we are actually making real progress toward fighting climate change? Well, you know, it may have been the hottest year on record, but a lot of climate activists like to say that it was actually the coolest year we're going to see going forward. Was this a turning point year? It's really hard to say. Because while emissions are still going up globally, there is a sense that the end of that trend is in sight. And it may be time to really take into account these things that are causing the problem that we've been explicitly dealing with for 30 years. 
So has enough changed in energy policy? I think it's a slow evolution here, but we can see where we need to go in terms of climate policy. But we still don't quite know that we've got the wherewithal to get there, whether we can maintain an economy that's going to get us there at the same time. Again, history will be the judge, but it was a year where a lot of work got done. For more news on energy and the environment, subscribe to our free newsletter at politico.com slash power dash switch. And subscribe to Politico Pro to read our morning energy newsletter. Some of the music in today's show was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Normal Malaykel is the podcast producer. Kara Tabor and Alex Keeney edited the podcast this week. Our editors are Matt Daly and Gloria Gonzalez. A quick programming note. We'll be off next week, December 25th through December 29th. We'll be back on Tuesday, January 2nd. And that's our show. I'm Catherine Morehouse and happy holidays. Today's program support is provided by Chevron. Progress means producing renewable fuels for today's fleets. Chevron intends to grow their renewable fuels production capacity to 100,000 barrels per day by 2030. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash renewable fuels.